0: Welcome to Shed, a podcast brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the fall of 2020, I interviewed members of our Martha's Vineyard community about the impact and implications of race in their lives. As a practicing therapist, I was interested in exploring the unique experiences that shape the lives of each guest and influence the way they see themselves and the world. We chose the name Shed to encourage listeners to do away with old beliefs that no longer serve us and to shed some light on systemic racism and its effects on us as individuals as well as the communities in which we live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Angela Henry is a mother of three and co-founder of the DJ Henry Dream Fund, which she and her husband, Dan Roy, started in honor of their eldest son, DJ, whose life was cut short in 2010 at the hands of police. DJ was at a bar celebrating with Pace University football teammates after a homecoming game in Pleasantville, New York. The police were called after a fight broke out amongst other patrons. DJ was asked to move his car, which was parked in front of the bar. It is alleged by the Pleasantville Police Department that DJ sped towards an officer, propelling him onto the hood of the car, forcing him to shoot. Witnesses deny DJ sped toward this officer or tried to hit him with this car. They say the DJ was pulling away slowly, and it is the officer that ran toward the car and jumped on the hood. The truth has never been determined, yet, the officer was not indicted on any charges. We are very honored to have Angela Henry join us here today on the podcast. Welcome, Angela. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Don't be nervous. I'm nervous enough for all of us. Okay, good. So many of us have been moved this summer by the response, particularly, to continued and what's really a systematic pattern of killing unarmed black people. Mm. I think I'd I'd like to start, if you would, if you would just tell us a little bit about DJ.
1: Without crying.
0: (laughs) You can cry if you need to.
1: All right. So, uh, DJ was our firstborn son, Mm -hmm. named after my husband. So, he's Dan Roy Henry Jr. Um, So, we call him DJ to make life easier because inevitably on every sport he played, there was another Danny. Hmm. So even though we called him Danny at home, we had to come up with DJ because we couldn't be shouting on the sidelines. Did he
0: like the nickname?
1: He loved it. (laughs) You know, at first it took him a little bit, then he kind of embraced it. And it was on all of his jerseys and shirts. He loved it. And he was honestly a very shy kid. Hmm. Very shy. All of his professors would say, can you just get him to speak up a little bit? If you could just get him to raise his hand, I could give him extra credit. But he's so quiet. Was he like that as a little kid? Um, He was comfortable at home, comfortable around the people that he knew. But anytime he was meeting new people or sometimes a new situation, he was he was shy. Mm -hmm. And then once he got comfortable, he was good to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was, you know, a true lover of all sports. He loved hanging out with his family. You know, ESPN was on all day every day. Mm -hmm. So we just um, we embraced that in our home because. (laughs) It was always a fight with him and his siblings about who could watch something other than ESPN. Mm -hmm. So he just grew into just be this wonderful young man that kind of got comfortable in his skin by the time he was like a freshman in college, actually, Mm -hmm. is when he just started to get a little bit more comfortable in who he was. Did he ever spend any time on the island? He did. We actually came here a couple of times, and we stayed with some friends in West Tisbury. And he was a beach bum. He loved the water. He loved, you know, riding waves and looking for seashells. He loved it.
0: Sounds like an awesome kid. I would say so. Can you tell me about the role sports played in his life?
1: He was always an athlete. And actually, soccer was his first love. And he decided to change from soccer to football because they were in the same season. And he just, you know, he loved being able to run. So I think feeling comfortable with his teammates and seeing what he was capable of doing on the field really helped him to come into his own skin there
0: so i have i have three kids 27 25 and 21 Mm -hmm. and i've had the conversation with each one of them at one time or another about how to respond if the police pull you over did you have those conversations
1: with them we did actually my husband had the conversation with them about how to behave in the car how to speak to them if you know, you're ever stopped. And what's unique is that we have a lot of police officers in our family. Mm. DJ spent a lot of time with them, so he knew what he needed to do if he was ever in a situation mm-hmm. where he was stopped by the police because he was told not only from us, but from my husband's closest friends that are all in the police
0: force. So he had positive images he of police. He had positive
1: images of police. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: So the topic that we're talking about today and it's, it's a mix of things, but we've, we've kind of settled on over-policing mm-hmm. and the role that over-policing has in this country. I mean, time after time, what we are seeing is that a broken taillight, a traffic violation, someone calling for help with a family member who's suffering a mental health episode ends up tragically. Mm. Can you tell us your thoughts or feelings around over-policing?
1: Well, having lived it, <laughs> it's extremely personal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so frustrating that there isn't any accountability when police officers do find themselves in situations where they're over policing, mm-hmm. they're using excessive force for no reason. And I think we've come to a pivotal point in our country where we truly are seeing someone be killed every, every single day. day for no reason. Mm-hmm. Every single day we well, have there to come is up a with something.
0: reason well, well, the reason is color mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it is about the color of our skin that is a threat. Mm. What is it that scares them to think that we're some sort of a threat to them I'm not I, I can't figure that one out.
0: I wouldn't even attempt to answer that right now, but there's I'm reading a really good book called Casts, mm-hmm. and I think that really speaks to it in a way that um, I've not heard before. What it really is, is about protecting the upper levels of the caste, the, the privileged members of the caste from a perceived threat so that they, the only way that they can stay secure in this superior position is by subjugating the ones on the lowest rung or the bottom members of the caste. And that was us because historically we came here with no rights, mm-hmm. really not even treated as humans. So I think in some ways it's very easy to say that this is a continuation of that, that black lives haven't mattered in the same way that white lives have mattered forever in this country.
1: I agree with that. But I also, at some point, and maybe I'm naive to think that with each new troop or each new officer that's sworn in, do they all have that same mentality? Mm -hmm. Or are there someone in there that... Doesn't feel the same way. You know, I, I don't know why I think maybe at some point their thinking will mm. change.
0: I have to feel that there are. One of the chants, because I spent a fair amount of time protesting over this summer, that was heard was there are no good cops in a racist system. Mm. Let me think about that.
1: Well, in the situation with our son, there was a good cop and a bad cop. You know, there was someone that was a 30 year police veteran came forward and told the truth. Mm-hmm. So, we think that there are some good cops in the system. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. one of the things that we've talked about is that it's a family business. Mm. You will see that there are a lot of brothers, uncles, cousins that are all police officers being mm. passed down and getting them into this the system. Mm-hmm. And maybe that thought process that they see from their dad gets passed down and they see the same thought process about how they view people of color in their family. And so when they're hired, they're coming into the situation already with a thought process that they've learned. It's a good point. From, you know, their family members that were in this system before. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen it in our own family, mm-hmm. you know, where someone says, oh, you want to be a police officer? I can help you. I know somebody. I know mm-hmm. what you need to do for the training. I'd like to believe that there are some good officers and I know that there are some being mm-hmm. that there's some in our family.
0: Yes. I think they become overwhelmed because they're caught up in a system that doesn't allow them to show their goodness. They don't get rewarded for showing their goodness. Correct. Through your foundation, you are working with a lot of kids. Yes. How do they approach race differently than, say, we did?
1: You know, the majority of the children that we serve are probably 70% people of color. And, you know, I probably wasn't as in when our children were younger, when Amber, Kyle, and DJ were younger. We probably didn't pay, you know, attention because we had the means to be able to provide for our kids. And we worked hard to make sure that they were all involved in some sort of activity. But for now, the children that we serve are predominantly um, minorities.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about the foundation? The sure. work you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So shortly after DJ was killed, my husband said we got to do something to honor him. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this foundation as a way to just keep DJ alive. So after he was killed, we also heard these amazing stories from his friends and teammates that said he was giving away his shirts, his mm. jerseys, his shoes, his shoulder pads, you know, all of these things that we were buying for him. Mm-hmm. He was giving them to people that needed them. Mm. And we had no idea. So finally, he would call and say, I need another pair of gloves. And we're like, didn't we just get you a pair of gloves? But he wasn't telling us what wow. he was doing with them. And so, of course, you know, we would say, sure, and send him another set of gloves. And it wasn't until and he was after passing
0: that stuff on to and people. And he who was needed giving that.
1: it, yeah, to people that needed it. And so it wasn't until after he died that they were telling us these stories. Mm. So when we heard these stories, we thought, how can we keep that going? And so, what we do now is, you know, for children in Massachusetts, we pay for that child to be able to have that opportunity if they can't afford it. Mm. So, if they want to play basketball, they want to run track, they want to do gymnastics, karate, whatever it is. If they can't afford it, then we step in and, and pay for it. That's outstanding. It's been one of the joys through this process. Is, and it's a is continuation
0: hearing. of what he's been doing.
1: And it's a wonderful continuation of what he started.
0: That is really nice. Mm-hmm. What would it mean to you if the officer who was responsible was held accountable?
1: Uh, it would mean that there is some justice in this country. Mm-hmm. We can't keep allowing them to say that they feared for their lives and get off. When they themselves place themselves in situations where they may get hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, in our situation, the officer admits to stepping in front of our son's car, but then says he feared for his life.
0: But he also said he could have easily stepped out of the way.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So here we are left with our hearts broken, Mm -hmm. living with just the memory of our son who was honestly an amazing young man. Mm -hmm. And yet this officer gets to live free. And there needs to be some accountability. There has to be. We mm-hmm. can't. It's just not fair. And, and both Amber and Kyle and my husband, we have these conversations like, how how is it that he continues to live his life on a daily basis? Yeah. And then every day we're left with this big empty void. It's not fair.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think the system is concerned with fairness? No. Hmm. But it's the justice system. Where is the justice?
1: That's what we're seeking, along with many other families. Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite sure where it is. It's, um, I believe that it's in the hearts of some of the people that work there, but we have to get through the unions. We have to get through that barrier that protects them. As I mentioned before, we have officers in our family, and it's really caused, in some ways, a division, given what's happening in our country right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they see what we've been through. And they understand what we've been through. But I feel like sometimes to them, it's just an isolated incident because they know DJ and they can connect with him. But when they look at the big picture and they're seeing every day there's someone else getting killed, I think they kind of revert back to their own comfortable basis of being a police officer, Mm -hmm. a police officer's family. Mm -hmm. And that's where they stand their ground. We're trying to constantly get them to open their eyes and see beyond like, yes, I love your support for DJ, but look at what's happening beyond him Mm -hmm. and open your eyes and how can you go back to your force and change that Mm. that's what we're trying to push them to do go back and have that tough conversation with their other officers
0: are you having any luck with that
1: we are we definitely are but you can still see that there are some biases
0: is there resistance to your message when you're talking with police
1: sometimes yeah sometimes and there are some people that will say well you know dj was just different He was just different because Mm -hmm. they knew him and they knew what he stood for. So sometimes, you know, they'll try to justify, well, that other guy walked away. Mm -hmm. Well, the other guy was, you know, breaking the law. Mm -hmm. Anything to get them to feel like what happened was justified. Yeah.
0: Do you think these cell phone videos have helped people to really see the big picture?
1: I think the picture presented itself almost in 3D. You can't look away. You can't. You have to see what's happening and really question, where do you stand? What side of the line are you on? Because, you know, I think with video and so many other things, you can't turn away anymore.
0: It feels like we're asking people finally to really choose sides. We're finally saying there's no longer making excuses or looking away, putting our head in the sand. Now we're saying, look, here it is. I thought the point was very well made when LeBron James tweeted out pictures of Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck and Kaepernick kneeling and said, Now do you get it? Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways, what happened when George Floyd was killed is that people that didn't really get it, didn't really want to get it, had no interest in getting it, they were forced to get it. Mm -hmm. And so now I think that's why we see that people are aware. And once you're really aware of what's happening, you can't really look away. You can't look away. You can't look away and still consider yourself a good person, a human, human being. Mm-hmm. about
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I said this before, is, you know, being a family that's experienced this firsthand, yeah. it's kind of hard to sit and listen to even more yeah. stories because you want to carry that. yeah, And you're processing and thinking like, I know what they're going through or I know what they're getting ready to go through. Mm -hmm.
0: You cannot become intimately acquainted with the details of someone's life, get to know who they were, what they like to do, how their family felt about them, and hear what happened and not be affected. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the importance of white allies in this struggle?
1: Well, I come from a biracial family. My mom's white, my dad's black. Me too. So I have a whole side of my family that's white that Mm -hmm. I consider allies that have fought for us, gone to protest when we couldn't go, spoke up when we didn't have the words to speak, and not to mention, you know, countless friends. But it's important that white people stand up and say that they see the injustice that's happening, because then it adds a little depth to our voices, So, to have other people come along and support us and stand up and say, yes, this is wrong, Mm -hmm. it just adds weight to it.
0: I heard someone say that uh, they felt like the civil rights movement was black people against white people, but that now they feel it's all of us against racists. Mm -hmm. And that's a real shift. And we need it. We do need it. We need it. It is all of us against racists. Absolutely. We're choosing sides. Can I ask you a little bit more about your background?
1: Sure. So, like I said, my mom's white, my dad's black. How did they meet? They met, I think, through mutual friends mm-hmm. at a time probably when it wasn't acceptable to be in a mixed relationship. Remember what year they, when they first met? They met in the late 60s. They found themselves in a situation where they were in love with each other, but mm. they had forces against them in their family. How'd they overcome that? I think they both just said, you know what? We love each other. We're going to do what we want to do. And they were young and they, you know, moved out of their homes that they were comfortable in, but just said, let's do this together. Mm-hmm. It wasn't easy because mm-hmm. my grandfather was a, a Marine on my mom's side. Mm-hmm. A Marine, a strict and um, a racist. Really? Yes.
0: Hmm. How was he with you?
1: You know, later on in life, he learned to love me.
0: He learned to love you. Yes. Did you love him?
1: I did. Mm-hmm. I did. But I, I, you know, I could easily see where his favorites were, mm-hmm. his other grandchildren. And I really, it didn't affect me that much. I was kind of like, whatever, you know, I know who loves me and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And then on my dad's side, my grandmother was not thrilled with my dad. Wanting to be with someone that was white. Do you know why? You know, coming out of a situation where they were coming out of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and seeing how there was this divide and they just felt like it was going to be more of a problem. Mm-hmm. But they both loved me unconditionally and poured out so much love that growing up, I really didn't question who I was. For our children, they have grown up surrounded by love from both races. Mm-hmm. And that's been a beautiful thing for them.
0: Mm, that's excellent. Mm-hmm. Angela, in closing, could you tell us a little bit about the DJ Henry Dream Foundation?
1: Okay, so we started in 2011 in our little kitchen. (laughs) No one knew what we were doing, and we would go out to community-based programs, knock on the door and say, hey, we have money. We want to give you money to help kids. And it's grown more than, you know, we had ever imagined. We provide funding for children in Massachusetts. We cover the fees for them to participate in community-based sports. And each year we try to give away $100,000. Hmm. So that impacts wow. a lot of children. I bet it does. Even during the pandemic, we've tried to come up with different initiatives to keep kids active and healthy at home just try to replicate DJ's example. Mm -hmm. I remember right before he died, we talked about having a 21st birthday party because he died just shy of his 21st birthday. And he said, Mom, who do you think would even come to my party? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I don't have that many friends. And then we had his celebration of life on his 21st birthday with over 3,000 people. 3,000 people. And I think... Do you see what you're doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to believe he's helping to orchestrate some of this no doubt and if they want to get involved and learn more you can visit www.djdreamfund.org
0: Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette thank you again for listening and if you like what you heard please share our podcast with your friends and family Shed is produced by Amy Schumer Renee Richardson Jack Ebby Tony Phillips, Chris Fisher, and the Vineyard Gazette.